things in this life and in this world today compete for our attention and our affection. Many things saying that it or they can provide us with all that we need. You see this in advertising, right? Where a car company is going to say, we provide you with the best. We've got the best in class. They're all declaring that they provide the best. Cell phone companies do this, don't they? We provide the best coverage. They're telling you that the further east you go into wherever is not even incorporated yet, it just keeps going past, I guess, Gilbert, then Queen Creek. I'm still learning Santan something. Some of them out there, I was told they don't even know if the trash gets picked up. There's no city ordinances yet. Out there, cell phone companies are like, we got bars, right? We can provide you with cell phone service out there. You ever been a tourist in a foreign country? Same thing. It's like they go out on the curbsides waiting for all of you, right? The ignorant Americans that don't speak the local language. And they're looking for you and they say, oh, the best food, we can provide it here. The best gifts, the best souvenirs, come in, come in. And apparently they can provide everything you'll ever need in like a 12 by 12 little tent or hut. You ever seen one of those? I have in foreign countries. We can provide. We have the provision. And, and that's a quintessential illustration of our world today, isn't it? Everybody's saying comfort found here, the best provided here, the most excellent fill-in-the-blank found here, peace, comfort, security, assurance, all of it provided here. But today you'll see that there is only one thing and one thing alone that has the power and the provision that you need That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. My proposition that I believe the Bible argues to a T very well without being compromising, without being defeated, not once has this been proven wrong. It is this, the gospel declares unparalleled provision. While everything else in this world declares that it can provide the best, the top, the gospel has an unparalleled provision. And you and I must understand and yes, even respond and receive that provision. The first thing that you get because of the gospel is a perfection that you can't earn. Number one, you get a perfection that you can't earn. Look at Paul's words in verse 17, the first part of it. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The word righteousness is used here the first time in the book of Romans. It'll be used another 36 times. Why that matters is Paul is using this word a lot in his letter to the Romans, building off the thesis statement that is right here in the beginning. You need to know what righteousness is is and what righteousness is not. He wants to make that really clear. It's defined as the full equity of God, the full justice of of God, the rightness, the approval of God. And I want you to hold on to that while we look at another word, which is that that righteousness of God is revealed. Apocalypto, where we get our word apocalypse from. It's something being pulled open, the lid being lifted off, the zipper coming right undone, the curtain splitting, it's all right there, revealed. He's saying that in the gospel, the full equity of God, his full justice, his full approval is being shown completely. 
There's nothing else you need. It's full equity. And you get that full equity and approval and justice by faith. That's what he means by faith for, from faith to faith. Paul is looking down the hallways of history and telling his audience, for Abraham, for Noah, and on and on and on through the ages, all the way until the New Testament church and over in Gilbert in 2019. It was faith, it is faith, and it forever will be faith that justifies the believer. From faith to faith. And this stands in contrast to many, if not all, other worldviews and even other religions. Take Mormonism for a second. The idea that we are saved by grace is something that a Mormon would affirm. Happened to me just this week in a conversation with someone. Uh, I believe that we're saved by grace through faith. A Mormon will say, we do too. When you look at their literature in like Second Nephi and other places, you'll find very quickly that it says this. You are saved by grace through faith. And then there's a little extra there that you see. And you don't see it in the book of Ephesians 2, chapters 2, verses 8 through 10. And you see it in Mormon literature. It is, you are saved by grace through faith after all that you can do. So picture it like this, to get the full equity of God, like God's the banker, okay, he's Chase Bank, and you've got to come with something to the table after all you can do to get the house. So you've got to scrape together your 10% down, your 5, your 7, your 20, whatever have you, you're calling grandma, you're calling mom and dad, you're pulling in favors, you're calling all the blue chips, remember mom, dad, I didn't break a window growing up like brother did, remember I got good grades in school, hey grandma, look at you. I kind of look like you, don't I? I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah, we'll do well with the money, send it over our way, and you're just trying to get yourself in the market, so you scrape it all together, you go to the bank, you say, here you go, banker, the banker sees and sees all you can do and then says, okay, approved, approved. You get the house. We hold the deed. Uh, You owe us some money, but you're approved. That is Mormonism. That is every other religion that says, you got to do a little something to get God to do this. He'll drop the ladder to you. It's down there, but you got to climb up. You got to do some work. Christianity is this. The God of the universe owns the house. He holds the deed. And you come with nothing. In fact, you don't even have good credit. And you show up, you fill out your little application, and you you hand it in, and you show up, you go, I I believe you're going to give me this house. I have faith. A bank will look at you like you are crazy. The God of this universe looks at you, though, and he sees saving faith. And he says, okay. You go, okay? Yeah, you don't need anything. No down payment, no five, no 10, no 20. Here it is, full deed house. I'm not coming for it. You don't make payments. You don't need to worry about me evicting you. You can't lose it. It's your house forever. That is Christian faith. That stands completely on its own, transcendent above every other religion or worldview that man could ever come up with. Only the Christian faith, the true Christian faith, promises the full equity of God, his justice and approval for nothing in return. You just come believing. It is faith that justifies. And Paul goes on to say, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the fully approved 
justified right before the Lord live by faith. You know what he's doing? He's reaching back to a prophet named Habakkuk, or some of you call him Habakkuk, in chapter 2, verse 4. Either way is fine. You can check Webster, Habakkuk or Habakkuk. It's okay. We don't need to fight in growth group. He's reaching back to the prophet who had some questions of God. Wondering about his timing. Wondering about his plan. Will it unfold? What will it do? And he's got all these questions about timing and he's wrestling through. And ultimately, God answers in chapter 2, verse 4 of that little prophetic letter. And God says this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. In other words, he's prideful. It is not upright within him, but the righteous man shall live by faith. What is God saying? Put it in 2019 vernacular here in Gilbert. He's saying this. God is saying that prideful, arrogant people are not in right standing with the Lord because they think they've got everything figured out on human terms. They're coming in with the resume going, here God, look it, look what I got, I got for you. God is not impressed with all that you can do. In fact, he's impressed when you come with nothing. Because that is evidence that in your heart and mind, he is everything. You gotta come empty, a beggar who simply needs him. Reminds me of Proverbs 3, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Make your paths straight. He'll lead the way. You do the trusting, you do the obeying. Like the great hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Just follow. Like a humble beggar who Christ promises to pick up from the ashes. I think there's no better picture of this than what Jesus paints for us in Luke 18, 9. One of my favorite parables, the Pharisee and the tax collector who come into the temple to pray. You remember them? If you don't, I'll tell you the story. And if you know it, I'm going to tell you anyway. These two guys come into the temple and oh, that Pharisee looks good. Long robe. Extra starch, feeling good. Beautiful robe flowing. His phylacteries, all his knowledge, all that he is, rolls in, and he doesn't sit in the back. He wants everybody to see him. So he sits in the front, and, but even more so than you who are sitting in the front, he gets right in front of you. And he stands right here. And not like one of those people that bows at the altar because they literally think the roof's going to cave in because they're such a humble sinner. I'm not talking about the kneeling people. I'm talking about he comes, stands right up front, right up front, head held high, spotlight on his back, and he says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like all of these people. I fast, I tithe, I give, I look so great when I do it. All that I have and all that I do is just a beautiful display for you. Here's my resume. Of course, I know you're impressed. Jesus then contrasts as though in a cinematic moment, the camera pans away from Mr. Hothead over to this guy in the back who's not so hot. And he won't even come close. He stays in the back He won't even look up. His head is down low, looking at the ground as though to say, "Ah, I know that I'm not even supposed to be here. I know this place should be lighting up in a ball of flames because I'm in it. And Jesus says the way that that man prays is a lot like this. Oh God, uh, be merciful to me. 
And Jesus says, he's beating his breast as he says this. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Definite article, the. Not, oh God, be merciful. I mean, I'm one of those people, everybody sins, right? Everybody blows it once in a while. I'm no worse than anyone else. I mean, everybody's kind of like in the same boat, right? We're all in it together, we're all sinking. I mean, it's okay, right? It's just everyone. No, he puts the spotlight on himself and not in a good way. Shining the light, going, put it on me. I'm here, I'm nothing, he's everything. I don't even want to look in that mirror because everything I see is so hideous and inadequate. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus asks a very, very convicting question. He says, which one went out that day justified? Then he goes on to teach those listening. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the picture. You can't earn your perfection no matter how good you look. Only Christ makes you perfect. Only Christ justifies you. So are you justified? Do you have the perfection that you can't earn? Which one do you pray like? Are you coming to God with all that you do, thinking that that's really impressive to him? Because he doesn't want all of that. He wants your brokenness. He wants the humility. He wants you to come and say, Abba, Father, I need you. I need you. I thought of one way to boil all this down for you in this first section. It's kind of a Romans road. For those of you that aren't familiar with that term, we're gonna take a few passages out of the book of Romans and I just wanna paint a a picture or you could even say it this way. I wanna put some coordinates in the map. So open up Google Maps or what have you and throw this in there and it'll take you to the destination. So guys who think you know everything, you don't need a road map, don't be arrogant, follow the road map, stick to it, follow the turns and the cues, okay? Picture this as a Romans road for how you and I are justified. These are in your notes. They'll be on the screen. The first one is God's holy wrath is revealed towards the unrighteous sinner. So God's holy wrath pointed at you and I, the unrighteous sinners, like a laser beam right on you. Nothing you can do to get out of it. If you don't admit that point, you're not really gonna get much further on this roadmap. You've already taken a wrong turn. You're veering off and, and Siri is saying, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. You gotta go back to the beginning, which is this. You are an unrighteous sinner and God's wrath is pointed out unrighteous sinners. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So this is, this is like a posture You need to accept that God's wrath is real. Some would erroneously call this cosmic child abuse. It's not. It's right. He's a holy God. He does not tolerate sin. And all men who have sinned deserve his wrath. And then the second thing is that you need to admit your state in that, which is the second letter, letter B, you're a helpless, unrighteous sinner. That's a good posture to have in the process of justification. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, even on your best day. Your righteousness is as filthy rags to God. We're, we're like the three and four-year-olds that thought we made our bed good and, and everything's still kind of all over the place, right? 
Like, like my kids, they, I made my bed and there's like four pillows on top. Everything's everywhere. There's no hospital corners. It looks really odd, but they did their best. That's like our best day to God. And even some of you who were in the military and you've got it so down, you don't even sleep in the sheet. You sleep on top or on the floor because you just want your bed to always look perfect. Even that picture is not enough to impress God. On our best day, we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And so, letter C, you can't earn righteousness with your own works. It's not you're saved by grace through faith after all you can do. It's you can't save yourself no matter what you do. You need and I need Jesus Christ alone. Romans 4, 4 through 5 points to this truth and says, but he who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. You're justified by believing in the one who can justify you, leading to the fourth and final turn on our little Romans road. Faith in Jesus Christ justifies you and reconciles you to God. See, before having faith in Christ, you're an enemy of God. You're not on the good side. You're on the bad side. And then you turn to him in faith and he says, justified. This is what it means that Jesus is the great high priest or he's the mediator. He's the righteousness that you put on. This is why Catholicism in its truest form doesn't really work because the only righteousness that you could ever have is Christ. And so you put a middleman in a box with a screen and you tell him all your sins and then he tells you, go do some Hail Marys or do something else and you're somehow good and he's a sinner too. That's not good enough for a holy God. You need a mediator. You need a middleman. You need a high priest who was and is perfect. And only Christ was and still is. Let me paint that picture even clearer. You picture God up in heaven, right? Point one, his wrath is pointed towards sinners. And then you come along, here's little you, and you believe, and you're going, I believe, I believe. And then somehow, by some cosmic mechanism, you're righteous, but you sinned on the way to church this morning. So how is it that you're righteous, right? Your thought life, everybody knows the mind is the last great battleground of sin, is it not? You can look good, you can keep your mouth shut, you can be driving with two hands on the wheel, no road rage, no nothing, but oh my goodness, is the mind ever going? It is a dangerous place. Amen. It is the final battleground where the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life create a haughty mind, thinking thoughts, leading us into sin. All of that going on and you and I are somehow righteous. Here's how that works. God looking down and he sees you and he doesn't really see all your sin. There's a middleman and his name is Jesus Christ. And the father looks down now through what's called, this is why in the big church word, the imputed righteousness of Christ. It basically means that he's the middleman, not a Catholic priest, not your works, nobody else. Christ comes and he puts himself right on top of you like a perfect filter. And the father's looking through the lens of perfection. That is Jesus. That's why you need him. That's why I can walk around today and say, I am righteous in Christ. You are the righteousness of Christ because you have Christ. He is the great mediator. He is the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith who is tempted but never sinned, who is enough to satisfy the wrath of the Father. That's what that looks like. 
And so you get a perfection that you can't earn. Number two, you get abundance that you can't buy. You get an abundant life that is not temporal, fading. It is eternal and it is spiritual. How many of us think and in our flesh, we imagine that there's some U-Haul behind the hearse and we're gonna get buried with it and take it with us and we're going up there to kind of add just a little renovation to our heavenly mansion and I'm bringing everything up with me. Nothing is coming with you when you go. The abundant life is not temporal, it is eternal. And there's a passage in Romans 8, just a few pages beyond where we are in Romans 1. This is one for the mantle. You know those passages that you want to look at every day when your hair's not done and you feel a little worn out and you're barely getting the coffee and you're going, oh, another day, Lord. And then you look up and above the mantle is something that says this. One of those. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Nobody can condemn God's people. Those who are in Christ. He goes on, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Oh, more than that, he says, he was also raised. He is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. You want to talk about abundance? The king of all kings, the lamb who was worthy to open the scroll, the Lord of the entire universe is praying for you, interceding right now for you. That's abundance. That's a promise. Who shall separate us, Paul goes on, from the love of Christ. He loves you so much. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. He goes on to say, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, through the superintending power of the Spirit, God breathing his word through Paul's pen, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else, else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord that is the promise that is the abundance when Jesus says in John 10 10 the thief comes to steal kill and destroy but I have come that they might have life and life more abundantly he's not talking about more stuff he's talking about eternal guarantees long Forever, unending, infinite, the king of all kings. Persecution can't stop it. Cancer diagnosis can't stop it. Prodigal children can't stop it. No money in the bank can't stop it. Having a lot of money in the bank is not going to do anything for it. It is the abundance that is only found in one treasure above all treasures. That is Christ and Christ alone. And there's a whole lot of preachers on TV and wherever else in bookstores today that'll sell you some bag of goods that isn't really good at all. That the abundant life is more stuff. That the abundant life is a little bit of Jesus for your soul, but mostly a lot of Jesus like the cherry on top for more stuff. You ever watch Christian television and you got these guys on there 
saying God's holy number is the number seven. And God told me in a dream last night that he's going to pour out seven years of blessing. So put your hands on the screen and write a check. Get your best check out, checkbook, everything. Get your money out. And here we go. You're going to give me a check for $777.77. And God is going to bless you and keep you and pay that mortgage off and give you that job promotion and bring that prodigal child back home. In Jesus' name, amen. As if that's the abundant life. I don't need a mortgage paid off. I need assurance for my soul. I don't need more stuff. I need a conversion. I need salvation. I need justification. I don't need more temporal assurance. I got enough of that. I'm here on this ball of dirt. Got shoes on my feet. Got a shirt on my back. I don't need any more indication of my life going well here. I need to know that when the little snippet of 70 years is over, what's on the other side? I need to know that I'm ready. That's the abundant life. But a key question must come up if we are ardent students of the Bible, and that is this. If he died for me, right? Jesus died for me, and the cross in the Bible seems to pay for some things, right? Seems to give us some sort of abundance or good on, I mean, are we, if we go from the, pro, the prosperity gospel, am I just supposed to go over to the poverty gospel, walk around with no shoes on and boast about it like I got nothing? Which is it? Well, there's a balance here. And we need to use our logic. God has given us a mind, amen? It's a thinking mind. It can be filled with his word kind of mind. And so we want to apply logic to this question. If he died for me to have the abundant life, why am I not experiencing it fully? You can write this down in your notes. This is the doctrine of the atonement, right? What the cross paid for that Jesus atoned for. The doctrine of the atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. Atonement, that Christ paid for something. And the Bible is very clear. If you look in Isaiah 53, that there's something going on here, that he was wounded for something, he was nailed to that cross for something. And so when we unpack the doctrine of the atonement, we do see that Christ did in fact pay for sin. He did, in fact, pay for sickness. By his stripes, we were healed. That's used two ways in the Bible. It is used both salvifically, which is spiritually, salvation for my soul. It's also cross-referenced in the New Testament for a physical healing. So certainly you could say that Christ paid for healing. He paid for pain. He paid for death. Of course he did. The reason you and I cannot be defeated by death and nothing can separate us from his love, including death, is because he paid for it. He bought it back. He redeemed it. And so we do see that in the atonement, there is a guarantee of salvation, is there not? There is a guarantee of healing, is there not? There's a guarantee of comfort, is there not? There is a guarantee of life and the abundant life, is there not? And before you think I've just turned a new leaf and now I'm going back to the prosperity gospel, let's apply these questions and these discoveries to basic logic. Few questions. He paid for sin. It guarantees salvation. How many of you are saved? Just, you can put your hand up. How many are assured that you're saved? You, you love the Lord. You want to say, I'm saved. Today I know I'm saved. Okay, well then, why aren't you in heaven yet? Why aren't you in your eternal life? If salvation's paid for and guaranteed, why aren't you there? Let's do another one. 1 Corinthians 15 If you're not familiar with that passage, just mark it down. Read it later. But Paul promises that we will get a glorified body when we die. 
Anybody excited about a glorified body? Amen. No more keto, no more Whole30, no more gray hair, no more diets, no more surgeries. This old crummy mummy that's just fading, nothing, it's just gone. I got a glorified body. It's promised. So what's wrong with all of you? I see some gray hair in the crowd. Just a little. I, I, I see some frowns, some pain. I'm sure it's not just me, but some of us, you know, the the genes don't fit the way they did a few months ago, right? So surely our bodies are not perfect. Instagram, everybody's using Adobe and Photoshopping little Instasham kind of perfection stuff. But the reality is behind the Instasham is reality. How many say amen to that? We know what reality is. I'm not in no glorified body and neither are you. So, so, so what's wrong with you then if it's guaranteed and paid for? Let's do one more. Don't raise your hands on this one. How many of you know, just you and the Holy Spirit, you and the Trinity in your mind, how many of you know you got some treasure up in heaven? Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. He was talking about giving. And God's not really into your amounts. People often say, oh, give 10%, give this percent, give this. It's not about amount. Giving is always about the heart. God is not interested in how much money you give. He's interested in the state of your heart as you give. Anybody got treasure in heaven? If you say amen in your mind, just say it in your mind. Yeah, you got treasure in heaven. Well, then why aren't we all rich right now? Where's my treasure? Jesus said he's got a mansion being prepared for me. Well, I'm not living in a mansion. How many of you live in apartments? Those are definitely not mansions. So why don't you have it? It's paid for. It's blood bought. It's guaranteed. Well, that's why logic is so important for the believer. That's why we want to use our minds, the 1 Corinthians 2 mind of Christ, and apply his word to these type of truths. It's very simple. These are eternal promises. These are promises fully realized in glory. These are promised and paid for, yes, now, but it's like holding a ticket. I got a ticket to the show. I know I'm going to be there. I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm going to be there. I'm going to get all the benefits of it. I'm holding the ticket as a guarantee, but I'm not there yet. That's the promise of God. That's the abundance that awaits. That's why Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Don't you dare trade what waits for you in eternity for 70 years of fleeting pleasures on this earth. Hold the Christ. He is the abundance. Third and finally, you get peace that you can't comprehend. It's peace that is beyond your mind's comprehension because it can't be originated and authored in your mind. It is beyond human logic. It is of divine origin. It is a peace from God. And the principle is simple here. In order to receive peace from God, you must be at peace with God. You need to be reconciled to God. And people often make peace a very subjective thing, don't they? And there's nothing wrong with saying this. I'm sure you've said it, I've said it. How many of you said, I feel peace about this decision? Right? That's fine. You want to feel peace about moving, peace about a job, peace about a person, peace about who you marry. You, you, sure, feel peace. By all means, feel peace. But on the subjective side of feeling peace, there also must be the objective side, the balance. We want to have balance in these areas. So whether or not you feel peace it is of some importance, but not 
of primary importance. I'll give you an example. I know without a shadow of a doubt that these chairs are going to hold you this morning. They're welded very well. We paid handsomely for them as a church. You did. I wasn't here yet. <laughs> They're going to hold you regardless of whether or not you feel peace about that chair. The facts about the chair don't care about your feelings. Okay? The chair is going to hold you whether you feel peace or not. So you go ahead and feel your peace or don't feel your peace, but that chair is going to hold you. Here's the way I would say that even further. Faith transcends your feelings. I like the way that Alistair Begg describes this. He visited a church in California one Sunday, a church not unlike ours, kind of a hip church, you know, wood everywhere, and everyone puts wood everywhere now. Apparently that makes churches cool. (laughs) Worship leader gets up there to start the service, and Alistair Begg, if you've ever heard him or watched him on TV or uh, heard him on the radio, he's one of those real solid preachers. He's got a suit and a tie on, reformed guy, and he's got a real thick kind of the Scottish accent deal, and he's very monotone and mellow, but his church is huge in Cleveland because it's the power of the word coming through this guy, and he shows up to this church a little more hip than his church, and he's sitting there, and the worship leader gets in. And on the stage, a little countdown goes down from five minutes, just like our church. And the guy gets on the mic and he looks at everybody, he goes, hey, how do y'all feel this morning? And Alistair begged the way only he can is sitting there and he describes what's going through his mind. He thought to himself, what kind of New Testament question is that? How do I feel? What do you mean, how do I feel? I woke up late, coffee wasn't on. Traffic on the way, no parking spot for me. Coffee wasn't good at church either. It ran out of donuts. Kids gone crazy. How do I feel? How do I feel? You want to sing about Jesus and oh, I want to praise you. And he goes on, you're not sitting there. Don't. If you asked me how I felt and I was honest, you probably wouldn't even think I'm a Christian and I'm a preacher. And then he goes on to declare, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me about my feelings. Ask me what I know about God's word. Ask me about the verity of my salvation, about the verity of his word, the assurance I have that no matter what I'm going through, no matter if we didn't take the dog out before we left, no matter what stains are on the carpet when we get home, no matter what the coffee's like, no matter what the greeter said, no matter what, don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. It is a mindset on God's word determined in faith that transcends how I feel. So faith always trumps our feelings. That's why it's peace that you can't comprehend. The Christian faith is not about feeling, it's about knowing. So there's two keys to finish this out. The first is you get peace of mind about your eternal destination. Peace of mind about your eternal destination. Romans 5.1 is so clear. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have peace about your eternity. I'm always amazed how certain situations arise on the weeks that this comes up in the preaching. Even just this week, we've got pastors and elders out visiting people at hospitals as they go on to their deathbed. I experienced this as a young man early in ministry. It was so interesting to me that in the first few years, I had more hospital visits than I'd ever had before and have ever had since. 
God puts us in positions, all of us, to see these things in reality. And men and women at the bedside for hospice care, looking at somebody, and all you can hear is the beep of the machine, and maybe the eyes can blink, or the hand can squeeze as we ask this person, are you ready? Are you ready? And trapped in their body, unable to move, but the, vo- the mind very much awake and active. I remember this moment with a man that I had known in our church and he was growing in age and his wife was battling cancer and then one day he gets hit and he's in the hospital and the chest is moving up and down with the breathing tube down the throat. The doctors don't want to say it outright, but you can tell they don't think he's going to make it. He ends up literally dying the next day, but that afternoon I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm looking at him and we just begin to recount the resume of faith. And I looked and I said, are you ready? And he just gave me the nod. And I started reminding him of all the times he opened his home. When the church was so new and and young people had tiny apartments that couldn't fit a lot of people. This guy had a large home and he kept inviting everyone into it. I reminded him how much he gave, how much he sacrificed, all the times he served, all the times he loved, all the times he poured out. The low maintenance member that he was, always sitting, receiving the word, never causing a lot of drama. Just coming, trusting and obeying and loving God's word. I started reminding him, are you ready? And he looked at me and just gave me the nod one more time. And I prayed with him. And the next day he was gone. Peace about an eternal destination. Do you have it? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that your soul will meet its maker when there's nothing going but that long straight line? And friends and family gather round to weep and mourn your loss, but you are gaining heaven. Is that what awaits you? you can have that peace of mind. Second and finally, peace in your mind, not only about your eternal destination, but your current situation. Where you are right now. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, another one for the mantle. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Once again, it does not matter how you feel, it matters what you know. No matter what you're going through. This is why worry, I'm not talking about being worried that the Uh, dinner's going to burn in the oven or worried that some other small minuscule thing is going to occur. I'm talking about real worry. You know the kind of worry, the habitual ongoing worry, the kind of worry that you and I have to be reminded out of as Christians where one of our friends, maybe even a spouse goes, hey, have you forgotten? You know you're a Christian, right? We serve this big uh, universal creator called God. Need to remind you of that? You're actually a pastor. That kind of worry. That kind of worry is ultimately sin because it's rooted in unbelief and unbelief is sin. It's the kind of worry that says, God, I don't know if you can handle this. That's why I'm worried. It's the kind of worry that said, I need to control this. I need to do something. If I feel more control, I'm going to worry less. That is ultimately sin because it says, God, I don't know if this is going to be beyond repair. I don't know if I can handle the conflict. I don't know if you can handle the conflict. What about me? What about my church? What about my friends? What about me? What about me? What about me? And worry is all about you and me. It forgets God. It forgets the peace 
And so we must go back to the foundation. Isaiah 26, three to four reminds us, declaring you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. There's no erosion with him. He's not going to roll down a hill and crack open. He's not small. He's not fading. He is an everlasting rock. You can build your life on him. And I challenge you to understand and to know that you don't have peace for one of these three reasons. Number one, you aren't saved. You don't have peace with God. You're not saved. That's why you don't have peace. That's why we invite you to respond to Christ and have eternal peace. Number two is you're saved, but you worry a lot because you don't know a lot about God, right? These are people that are new to faith. And I want to say two things. That's okay and it's not okay, right? It's okay because everybody's been there. And then it's not okay because we've got growth groups for you. We've got pastoral support for you. We've got men and women that'll walk with you. There's a reason. We, God might love you right where you're at and meet you where you're at, but praise God, he doesn't leave us where we're at. So you're saved, but you worry a lot because you just don't know your God yet. But there's a third group, and it's those of you who are saved, but you worry a lot And you think you know a lot about God, but your habitual worrying is evidence that you don't know God like you thought or think you do. And no matter what station you find yourself in, there is one common denominator. It is the way we respond to him. Back to the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you come pompous and haughty or do you come low saying, God, I need you. God, I humbly bow before you as a beggar. I am the unrighteous. Your wrath is pointed to me. I don't have your son, Jesus. I want your son, Jesus. Please save my life. Or do you come also saying, God, I believe. I want to believe more. I'm just unsure. I don't know you. Please help. Help me now. I need you. I'm inadequate. And finally, do you come and say, God, I've been saved a long time I I claim to follow you I I claim to look like you I claim to be one of yours but there there are these encumbrances that keep weighing me down and I have been so arrogant not to put those before you so here I am imperfect finite supposed to have it all figured out I don't but you do and just like Psalm 51, 17, when David is repenting of his great sin and he turns to his great savior, you and I can understand that the broken and contrite heart, the Lord never despises. He'll always meet you right where you are. In the 1800s, there was a, a man named Horatio Spafford. And old Mr. Spafford was a very wealthy man. He had made great investments throughout his life. He had done very well for himself. And it was in the year 1871, he sent correspondence to his friends and his family, telling them all the wonderful things that had happened in his life. And he's going on and on about his beautiful wife and his four beautiful daughters and his wealth, thinking, man, I've arrived. I'm on the top of this mountain. And in the same year, One night, he would lose it all. See, there was a woman named Miss O'Leary. Miss O'Leary had a cow. 
And that cow kicked over a lantern in the barn. It lit the barn on fire, lit her house on fire, and it lit the whole city on fire. And thus began the great Chicago fire of 1871. The same fire that burned on the night that D.L. Moody preached that sermon telling that crowd, you go home and think it over for a week. The same fire that took the lives of people who were in the crowd that very night, causing Moody to lament and say, oh, to to have ever given a crowd a week to think over the gospel. We must call for a verdict now on souls. That fire, that night. And so Spafford, viewing his portfolio, literally, it's ashes. Doctors say, Horatio, you took this one rough, but your wife got hit the most. You ought to take her on a vacation. You ought to pull back and get her some rest. And so he goes and he books a vacation to Europe. They're going to go across the Atlantic to Europe on a beautiful vacation. And so he then, getting a business call that he had to take care of, sends his wife and daughters onto a ship on ahead and says, I'm going to catch a ship and follow up with you. And going across the Atlantic at full speed, their ship carrying his wife and daughters, ran into a British ship, a very large ship, running full speed. And in just 12 minutes, 226 people were killed. When the survivors reached Cardiff, Wales, Horatio's wife being one of them, all she could do was muster up the strength to send one quick, short telegram. It had two words on it, and when it reached Spafford, it simply said, saved alone. Spafford boarded the next ship, charging across the Atlantic to go and be with his wife in mourning. And as they were going along, the captain came down. He said, Mr. Spafford, we're now about to pass the spot where your four daughters are laid to rest. Spafford, standing there for a moment, about to burst into tears and be grief-stricken, suddenly remembers the words of his dear friend, the preacher, D.L. Moody. Moody once told him, Horatio, one day you're going to read that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? For one second. Because in that moment, when you see that I'm dead, I'm going to be more alive than I've ever been before. And while he should have burst into grief-stricken tears... Spafford begins to glow and smile, thinking of his daughters, more alive than they had ever been before. Words of praise begin to fill his heart, fill his mind, fill his soul. So quickly, he runs back to his cabin. He pulls out a pencil, and he begins to write these words down that had so filled his soul, they were bursting forth. And he he, he stands there writing, When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul and he would reach the shore going on to complete the writing of the great hymn it is well it is well with my soul and so the question comes to bear upon your soul and upon mine is it well Come death, come pain, come trial, come persecution, come what this world may throw at you. Is it well with your soul? Do you have that assurance? And can you sing that whatever your lot, 
he has caused you to say, it is well, it is well with your soul.